This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. Doug Jones won a special election to replace Jeff Sessions in the United States Senate. Since then, he's been one of the few members who can reach across the aisle and find common ground on important issues affecting veterans, access to health care, and more. Doug is a moderate, a former prosecutor who tried the people who bombed the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham. And he's my friend. He's up for re-election in 2020, and he joined me to make the case as to why he is the right person to continue to represent Alabama in the Senate. I think that I have been waiting all my life, and now I just don't know what the hell to say. We have a major projection right now. And CNN projects Doug Jones, the Democrat. He will be the next United States senator from Alabama. He beats Roy Moore in this really, really exciting contest. Alabamans didn't want somebody who dated 14-year-old girls. Doug talked about the issues he cares about. I've known Doug since he was in law school. He worked with me. I went down and campaigned for him. Democrats have written off the South for far too long. I'm Senator Doug Jones from Alabama, and here's the truth. In all my work in the Senate, I have your back and no one else's. Sorry, not sorry. First of all, Senator, thank you so much for taking the time to do the podcast. I would like to start by talking about COVID-19. And we're recording this in the middle of July. We knew in February and March what needed to be done, right? Now, 138,000 people have died. Projections indicate more than 200,000 people will die by November. Cases are rising almost everywhere in the country, especially in the South. And the Trump administration is just... I don't know how else to say it, but he is just failing in every possible way in managing this pandemic. So what is your opinion? What should we be doing nationally and what should Alabama be doing to combat COVID-19? Alyssa, first of all, thanks for having me. I really appreciate this opportunity to speak with you. It's good to talk to you and see you again. Let me tell you, I think we have to do what I've said all along that we have to do, and that is listen to the healthcare experts. Listen to the healthcare experts that are the national voices, like Dr. Fauci and Dr. Redfield, and those that are on top of this. Listen to your local healthcare professionals, listen to the statewide healthcare professionals, and follow their advice. The problem that we have right now is that clearly we have a 
lack of leadership from the administration. We have not seen the kind of leadership that we should have from the very beginning of this. Right. When the administration was downplaying it. And then, as I think the president realized that we had to shut the economy down, which was his pride and joy, then he started to try to intimidate people too much to open the economy up. He was intimidating protesters in Michigan and elsewhere. And that had a ripple effect around the country. Then it was politicizing the wearing of masks. As we learned more and more about this virus, it became clear that we needed to wear masks. And that all of a sudden became a political issue. It's not as much anymore, but it's still in places a political issue. And now we're politicizing the opening of schools. Do you think that Alabama was too quick to reopen? I do. I think we tried to accelerate uh, the process. And I think, you know, uh, from our standpoint, that has had a negative impact on our progress. And I think that's why we've regressed some and we've seen a 300 percent increase uh, in cases month over month after going the first three weeks of this month at a 40% clip. If people would listen to the healthcare professionals, follow the guidelines, and understand the world had never seen this virus before like December. Nobody has the antibodies at that time. Nobody had the immunities. And this is a work in progress. We are learning more and more and more about this virus as we go along. We mm -hmm. have no vaccine. Our therapeutics are getting better. The only way we can stop the spread of this virus is for us to do our part. We are in this together and we need to act like it. Do you think we need some sort of coordinated national shutdown to try to get this under control? I think that would be very, very difficult to try to do that. And there are places in this country where I think that you wouldn't need to shut down nationally right now if they take some of the precautions. We're a big country. We're a diverse country. We have seen the virus spread in different areas. I think it would be very, very difficult to try to have any kind of national shutdown. But, you know, a lot of the governors are stepping up. A lot of them are not. And a lot of them are seeing their states ravaged. But a lot yeah. of the governors have been stepping up, doing the right thing. Our governor in Alabama issued a statewide mask order. She's the only governor in the Deep South that has issued that. In fact, the governor of Georgia which is raging as much as Alabama, yesterday issued something banning local officials from issuing a mask order. It's the damnedest thing I've ever heard of. And so I think that the states are stepping up. Individual mayors have been stepping up. I mean, when you have a lack of leadership coming from the administration, you've got to have the local leaders stepping up. So I think we're doing it on a hotspot by hotspot, state by state, community by community basis. It'd be tough to do it on a national basis. But there's plenty of spokesmen out there, Alyssa, from the national level that are telling people to wear masks and to social distance and do those things. It's amazing to me how the masks were politicized. And I say it a lot on this podcast, but anytime we politicize something, we dehumanize it. And yep. I think this is a perfect example. But when you look at deaths, the numbers don't lie. So even no. if you were the type of person to say, you know what, I don't believe in science, I think truth and fact is relative, there's concrete numbers here that are undeniable. And do you think that there's any chance that we get this under control while this administration is still in place? Or do you think that it's going to continue to rage and grow until we have leadership in there that can at least be willing to listen to science? I'm going to answer you with a glass half full. And I'm going to say I put faith in the majority of the American people to start doing the right thing. 
they're seeing these numbers too. They're seeing the lack of leadership. They're seeing the numbers and the deaths and the virus. They're seeing the fact that the average age of someone catching this virus now has gone down 15 years, 15 years from when we first started. So this is just not a senior's virus anymore. So I'm going to put more faith, and I guess I have more faith these days in a lot of the governors of whatever political party Mm -hmm. and local Mm -hmm. leaders and mayors to lead by example and to do those things necessary. What's interesting to me is that I've heard so many folks in Alabama, and we had a problem with folks not wearing masks. We still do. But so many people aren't listening to the reason why you wear a mask. They think it is just to protect themselves. I've heard so many people say, well, I don't need to wear a mask. I may get it, but I'm in a low risk category, so I'll take my chances. It's not about you. It's about the people with pre-existing conditions, the diabetes, the heart disease, the things like that that puts them at risk. You could be asymptomatic and spread this disease, spread this virus so easy without wearing a mask and you not even know it and putting people at risk. So I tell folks down here, look, this is golden rule time, okay? This is do unto others as you would do unto yourself. And so wear the mask for others, wear the mask for those healthcare professionals that are on the front lines that are just having mental breakdowns these days with all that they are overwhelmed about. Look, I'm going to, again, go back to your question. I'm going to have a glass half full. I give a lot of faith in the American people to see where we are and start making these comparisons and see through the lack of leadership and start doing the things necessary for themselves. It really gives us a great snapshot of how dangerous misinformation is. And not not only to the health of our democracy, but to our own physical health. And I just have like this heartache about people over 60 or my parents who are in their 70s who fought so hard to have this time in their lives be about their grandkids or being able to walk together in the park. My parents have been married for 53 years. They feel trapped in a condo. It's so heartbreaking to me to think that there is an entire generation of people who worked so hard to end up in the later years of their lives in this situation and there being such a risk for their health. It's very difficult. I mean, look, I'm in one of those high risk categories. I have to get out and do some things back and forth to Washington, D.C., I don't get out when I'm here in Alabama very much at all. And when I do, I'm wearing a mask, I social distance. We keep my travel at a minimum right now. But I know that pain. You know, I lost my dad this past December. My mom and dad had been married 70 years, three months and 23 days. And we lost him in December. And she is in assisted living here in Birmingham. And they've done a great job, but we had no sooner lost dad than they started locking her down with all the others. And so we haven't had the chance to accept to interact by telephone a couple of times and we've had to take her to the doctor or something. And that's tough. It's tough on me, my sister, my wife and family. And it's especially tough on her not being able to grieve with her family over the loss of my dad. And I see these folks and I talk about it all the time that it is heartbreaking. And this is not about us individually. That's what bothers me so much about the politicalization. People that are doing that are saying that it's just about them. Damn it, it ain't about them. It's about all of us. It's about everybody in this country. We just got to do a better job. I think people are getting that message. 
Well, I think this crisis also just amplifies the way our country views healthcare and how that system is badly broken at a time when more than 5 million Americans lost employer-based healthcare due to COVID. Uh, the Trump administration and several states, including Alabama, are in the courts trying to overturn the ACA. This is a Fox News alert. 20 states suing the Trump administration tonight over Obamacare. They say they've got the key to ending the controversial health insurance program for good. And it's all possible, apparently, because of the tax bill that just passed Congress. So what do you think that we should be doing about health care nationally? And what about in Alabama specifically? You know, I have been long, long, long time advocate of expanding Medicaid in Alabama under the ACA. And I think it is an absolute tragedy that in the middle of this pandemic, the administration and states like Alabama have joined this lawsuit to try to completely dismantle the ACA. What that's going to do if they are successful is to throw our healthcare insurance and healthcare delivery into a turmoil. It is going to, in a state like Alabama, that has, in a state of about four and a half million, we've got 800 to 900,000 people under the age of 65 that have a pre existing condition of some type that is going to have their healthcare at risk. They may not be able to get it, they may not be able to afford it. And it's just crazy what we're doing. So we have got to, number one, vote and vote with our healthcare. We've got to give some federal incentives to states like Alabama to go ahead and expand Medicaid to give these hundreds of thousands of people the opportunity for that. There's a, another aspect of our health care, too, Alyssa, that I think is going to be extremely important going forward. I mean, we want to make sure everybody has access to health care, good health care, affordable health care. I'm in favor personally of a public option for health care. There's other things out there. But there's something else that I think we have to be very, very conscious of during this pandemic and beyond. And that's how we keep people safe. Our world is not going to be the same as we knew it for quite a while. We're going to need more masks. We're going to need more healthcare manufacturing. And we can't be so dependent on China and other countries for our healthcare manufacturing needs. We've seen shortages early on. We're starting to see shortages again because of the surges. You know, I've got a bill pending right now to incentivize companies to bring that healthcare manufacturing back to the United States of America so that we can replenish our stockpiles. We can have everything necessary, not just for our first responders, but also for our businesses, our schools. Everybody is going to need this healthcare equipment, the PPE going forward for quite a long time. So there's a lot of things that I think are in the works we can do. We've got to lower prescription drug prices. There's a couple of bills pending right now to do just that. That's a good step. We have just been so consumed with the immediate in front of us. I don't know when we'll be able to get to those bigger issues right now. It's heartbreaking because the issues continue to pile up, right? It's not like everything is at a standstill because we're dealing with a pandemic. It's not only piling up. People need to understand, I think, that even if this virus miraculously disappears in another month or two, which it's not going to, we know that, but at some point we will be under control. At some point we'll have a vaccine. But our healthcare system is going to be stressed for a long, long time. There are elective surgeries that are not taking place around the country that are getting backlogged. There are people that are getting other issues, diseases that run rampant anyway, that we're going to have to deal with. And I will tell you one of the biggest issues that we will face, and that's mental health. We have had a mental health yep. crisis in this country before this pandemic and during and following this pandemic. It is going to be exacerbated beyond what I think people appreciate. And I don't think we're appropriately planning on that crisis yet. We've got to start focusing on that. 
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I think mental health always takes a back seat to everything else. I have two young children. I have an eight-year-old and a five-year-old. And when I hear them talking about opening up the school, my mind isn't about how are they going to keep these kids safe from the pandemic. My mind goes to like, how are they going to discuss this where kids have to wear masks nine hours a day in a classroom and can't roughhouse with their buddies or hug or hold hands? I mean, that younger generation, this is going to imprint upon them so many things that I don't think that we're prepared for at all. I started doing this thing with my kids because I felt like it was probably the most important thing I could do right now as a mom. And I got them a therapist. We call it the feelings doctor. And we check in with her every other week so that the kids can just talk about their fears and what they're thinking. And the way I talked to them about doing this was like, we take care of our teeth. We go in for our vaccinations. Our brain is an organ. We have to take care of that. We have to be aware that this is a hard time and you need a professional to help you put it all in its right place. And it's been so helpful. And at first I was like, oh, I don't want my kids to talk to a therapist. But now I think they all do, especially if we're talking about going back to school. Yeah, it's going to be a real issue for these kids. The virtual learning is difficult. Hell, the virtual learning is tough for us. We're still learning virtually. We're doing all of this right now. I mean, right. it is going to be really tough for kids. It's going to be tough for those kids who love sports and uh, like to get out yeah. and rough it up and play. That's my son. And it's going to be tough in a learning environment when you're trying to learn from each other as well. The social interaction that we're losing in all of this for these young kids the younger kids may can adapt to this a lot better. I really worry about those that are like ages 10, 12 and above who really have gotten used to a world where everything goes. It's just a lot of fun. You're out there doing a lot of things. You can do so much. And you you've got to feel safe, back. protected, yes, you know, absolutely. all of that. And their world is completely changed and it's difficult to navigate as a parent. But also we're just in a super divided time. That is also tough to navigate in this country. And you occupy a more and more unique place in government as a moderate. I want to know why you think having moderates in office matters. Thank you for asking the question. I think it matters because it's easier to reach to the right or the left when you're kind of in the middle. It's a lot harder to reach over from an extreme to try to get folks to listen and to pull people your way. And if you're reaching to the right and to the left and you're in the middle, that reach is not quite as far. And the people you're reaching to don't have to go quite as far in order to try to find the common ground that is necessary to get things done. People on all sides of the political aisle want to get some things done. And it's the folks in the middle that can help make that happen 
because we are the common ground, to be honest with you. We are that common ground that people can find, and we've just got to be able to persuade. So I, I just think it's really important. And when I say that, I don't want to dismiss any of the voices on either side of those moderate voices at all. Everybody's voice should be heard, even voices I strongly disagree with. But the fact is, you don't have to compromise your principles in order to try to find common ground and get something done. I really hope that we see more of the moderate Democrats from the South that make their way into the Senate, into the Congress, because I think we can really lead the way with the country to help do a lot of healing, but also help get a lot of things done. Yeah, and I think that there's an element of being the right candidate for your state. We look at the South, I think, as being incredibly red. But I think as your being in office has proven, there are people that are ready for change, but they don't want it all at once. Sometimes it's gradual. And I think it's so important that there's people like you that are able to say basically one Alabama, which is the slogan that you're running under. And I believe it. I don't want folks listening to this to think that I'm running on one Alabama as a political stunt because it's not. It's who I am. It's what I believe. I mean, I happen to be someone who grew up in an era of segregation and change after that. And so I've seen both the successes and the failures of where we are in the South and the country. And so I'm a product of that. I'm a product of that progressive ideals with moderate tendencies to try to make sure that all people are created equal, treated equally, that we have a fairness in the system. No one should be arguing. And I don't think that at the end of the day, they actually do argue that people should not be treated fairly and equally. The people that would say that that was a not true statement is just they are living in a bygone era and they are just few and far between. And so what we've tried to do in the state was to bring those voices out in all candor. Politically in the South, folks just got indoctrinated and Democrats, I don't think, really had their voices. They started losing offices and losing elections and they thought if they could, they, and, and that's when they lost their heart. And we've got to get that heart back because, you know, my heart is with the people of the state, regardless of who they are, which zip code they live in, regardless of the color of their skin or the religion. My heart is with the people of this state and we can't always agree on everything. We doggone can sure find a lot of common ground about jobs and the economy and healthcare and those kind of things. That's what's important to people. And we're moving in a direction. We're in a more just society. And the people of the South, people of Alabama are moving that way as well. We've just got to make sure that those voices continue to be heard and to help educate a lot of folks and sit down and have more dialogues than monologues. It's the promise I made, Alyssa, in 2017 to work with everyone, to try to find that common ground. It's why we've been able to have the success of the 17 bills. I mean, I got to tell you, 17 bills in two and a half years as a freshman senator, that's a pretty good record. And it's finding that common ground and doing those things for the people of the state that allows me to do that. In the latest polling, you appear to be tied with a candidate that Trump endorsed. You are running in a state which nearly elected Roy Moore. So what is your strategy? Can you win? What's your path to reelection in a state that, to be frank, usually elects Republicans? Yeah, you know, part of this is an educational process. I mean, the fact that a Democrat from Alabama is even in a statistical tie with any Republican right now that's just coming off a runoff is a pretty strong statement. Now we've got a record. In 2017, we just had a voice and a background that let people know I was sincere and I wanted to do the right thing. 
that Alabama had been trending in the wrong direction. We've got high poverty. We've got high health care problems, diabetes and cardio disease. We're an unhealthy state. We're a poor state. So we were trending in the wrong direction in so many things, and people were looking for another voice. I won that race not just because Roy Moore was a flawed candidate. We had so much enthusiasm and momentum behind my race in 2017. And now we've got the record to show that we've been able to do exactly what we've said and not be the hyper-partisan like my opponent in this race is. It's funny, for two and a half years, every town hall I would go to, everything I would see, I would always close by telling folks, look, we're not going to agree on everything, but it's times like this when we can sit down and we can have a dialogue and talk about things, find common ground where we can. If we can't, we can agree to disagree without being disagreeable. And then at some point, I want you to walk away knowing this, that regardless of whether you agree with me on everything or not, Doug Jones has got my back. He's looking out for me. He's looking out for the people of this state. Well, lo and behold, the first time I saw Tommy Tuberville, my opponent in this race, say or do anything, he made it very clear he moved back to Alabama just 18 months ago because he didn't want to do anything but have Donald Trump's back. You know, that's just not where I am. I've got the people of Alabama's back and no one else's. And that's what people in this state want. They want the authenticity. They want somebody who'll shoot straight with them. They want somebody who can get something done. And they know that a hyperpartisan is not going to be able to get anything done. Trump has not been able to bring the country together at this moment. And in fact, what he's done is he's alienated a lot of folks, not by the way, just African-Americans who might feel most personally passionate about this, but he's alienated a lot of white independents and moderates because those folks in the middle don't wanna be seen as being on the wrong side of history. So every day, our path to victory gets wider and wider. It's amazing. And I remember very well what that energy was like in 2017 when I was on the ground driving people to the polls for your campaign then. I wish we didn't have a pandemic because I'd be right there (laughs) driving people to the polls this time too. I love Alabama. I really do. And Alabama has a difficult civil rights past. I mean, Dr. King wrote letter from a Birmingham jail in Alabama. Obviously, the 16th Street church bombing. The National Guard had to be called in to enforce the integration of the University of Alabama. And given what's happening nationally now, how can you build a winning coalition in the state today? First of all, I think you have to be careful when you're talking about coalitions, because I'm not going to build a coalition with this group, this group, or that group, because when you do that, you leave somebody out. We are trying to appeal to so many people. I know there are certain demographics in this state that I'm not going to get the majority of votes of, but I think I can get more votes than any Democrats gotten in the past. And then I think that there are folks in this state, a Democratic base out there that's very strong. I think there's an independent base out there that's very strong, and I'm going to get most of those votes. I'll get over a majority of those votes, I believe. And you build that by being who you are and being a voice for progress. Senator Doug Jones has made history in Alabama a few times. For starters, he became the first Democrat in 25 years to clinch one of the state's U.S. Senate seats. But before his days in office, Jones was influential in a pair of landmark civil rights trials. When he was a U.S. attorney in the early 2000s, Jones brought two white supremacists to justice decades after a deadly attack. It was for their involvement in the 1963 Birmingham church bombing. The bombing killed four young African-American girls. You mentioned what's happened in Birmingham in the 1960s in Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail. I have not shied away from running on my ability to speak to those times 
and the justice that I was able to get as a U.S. attorney in prosecuting the 16th Street bombing case, 37 and 30 years later, eight years later, sending two Klansmen to jail for the murder of those four young girls. It's something I am incredibly proud of. In fact, it's probably the biggest thing in my career that I'll ever have. One of those bombers just died recently in prison. And it harkens back to a time of the Birmingham fire hoses and dogs and the church bombing and the beating on this Edmund Pettus Bridge. And we are in a historic moment. And so we read that letter from a Birmingham jail on the floor of the United States Senate for the second time. I am hoping, because I can tell you, as long as I am in the United States Senate, That is going to be a tradition in the United States Senate. We did it last year, and we did it again this year. Three Republicans, three Democrats reading Dr. King's letter. The urgency of that letter is as strong now as it was in 1963. And then I gave a speech afterwards, about a 20-minute speech on where we are in this country, because I think we're in another historical moment that we can't let pass, that we've got to atone for the multi-generational failures of racial equality that we've not achieved in this country. You know, Alyssa, it's funny. I gave so many speeches about the church bombing. And when I got to what happened in 63 with the fire hoses, the dogs, the stand in the schoolhouse door and the bombing, I always say that the conscience of America really changed at that point. It got to the conscience of America. It woke up a Congress and a president. I think what's happened recently, the pandemic that has spotlighted inequalities in this country, racial inequalities in this country. And then the George Floyd murder. You know, the conscience of America today is not where it was just six months ago. And that's a good thing. And we've got to act on that and not let this historic moment pass. Yeah, we're definitely going to have to come out of this time better than we went into this time. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. In your opinion, does the Senate even work? It seems like they're just there to serve Trump's whims or to prevent any real progress. The House has passed how many bills? More than 400 bills, most of them bipartisan, by the way. And the Senate has not taken up any of them at all. So do you think the Senate even works? I think the Senate is a shell of what it used to be and what it should be. The Senate, we used to be called the world's most deliberative body. We are not that now. We do not debate. We do not have regular order. Right now, it is controlled by the majority leader, Senator McConnell. He controls the floor. He puts on the floor what he wants to. He doesn't put on the floor things he doesn't want to. I just want to start off the morning to say uh, that um, uh, Leader McConnell seems to take great pride in calling himself the Grim Reaper. It's part of his political campaign. It's part of the pride he takes as leader of the Senate. And as you see what he wants to bury, none of these things are going to pass. They won't even be voted on. 
So think of me as the grim, grim reaper, his own quote. He wants to bury the For the People Act for cleaner government, the Equality Act uh, for ending discrimination against LGBTQ community, dreamers, and uh, to protect our dreamers and uh, TPS recipients, paycheck fairness, equal pay for equal work, gun violence protection, common sense background check legislation. He's burying that. Climate action now. Climate action now. Let's bury that. Save the Internet Act, the net neutrality legislation young people are so concerned about. We don't do our job the way the Senate was designed to by the founding fathers and the Constitution. And that is a real shame. You know, I worked for the Senate Judiciary Committee in 1979 and 1980, and I'm currently reading a great book called The Last Great Senate. And it is about the era of like 76 through 1980. And it's pretty remarkable how the Senate worked and how the political factions had their say and they did some things, but they also at the end of the day would come together and they would get things done for the country. The Senate can function. Look what we did with passing the CARES Act, $2 trillion worth of things that had to be done. We didn't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. We got that out in a matter of weeks and it passed the Senate like 98 to nothing. So it was an extraordinary work. So we can do that. But we can't do it when Senator McConnell is more interested in political votes or votes that are just simply there that are must have votes that have been hashed out behind closed doors, even with Democrats involved. I'm not criticizing that part of it, but we don't get to debate amendments. We don't get to debate on the floor. Anything you see on the floor these days is just a political speech. And that's a real shame. I would love to see us get back to regular order. What are some of the things that you've accomplished in the last two years since you've been a senator that you're most proud of? Well, I'll tell you the one thing that I'm probably the most proud of. As I said earlier, we've got 17 bills that we've done, and it ranges everywhere from small business to some civil rights things like the Civil Rights Cold Case Act that Ted Cruz, as a matter of fact, did with me and worked hard to get done. I will tell you there's two things that we've done. One is we've used the office as a bully pulpit to advocate for better health care for Medicaid expansion, for better maternal health care and infant mortality, better children's health care, to educate for HBCUs. I've been able to work in my very first year with Senator Harris from California. We were able to secure a 14% increase in funding for HBCUs. We got a similar funding the next year. And then this past year, we were able to get some permanent funding for HBCUs. It's a big deal for our minority-serving institutions and historically black colleges and universities. I will tell you, other than those two days where we read the letter from a Birmingham jail, which was really an emotional day doing that, those were remarkable days. Senator from Alabama. Thank you, Madam President. Continuing the reading from the letter from a Birmingham jail, you may well ask, what direct action... Why sit-ins, marches, and so forth? Isn't negotiation a better path? You're quite right in calling for negotiation. Indeed, this is the very purpose of direct action. Nonviolent direct action seeks to create such a crisis and foster such a tension that a community which has constantly refused to negotiate is forced to confront the issue. The day that I will always remember the most is for something that we were able to do for veterans and military widows. For 20, 30 years, there has been what was known as the military widows tax. What that military widows tax did is that for about 30 years, it would deny the benefits from spouses whose loved one had died of a service-related injury or death. 
You can imagine a young widow with children, and she doesn't have a profession, maybe a job, and she wants to get training, but who's going to watch the kids? This $1,300 that's being taken away from her is very important. And they would have two benefits. One is a VA benefit that's statutory that gets everybody. Another benefit through the Department of Defense was something that these families purchased with their own money. But for 30 years, DOD and VA would offset each other, and they wouldn't get the benefit of both pots. They would only get about 55, 60% of that. It was unbelievable to me when I heard about this. And these Gold Star families, Gold Star widows, had worked for over 20 years to get that changed and get that eliminated so they could get what this country owed to them. And we met with some folks. I had not heard anything about it. They came up and met with me and my staff. And I said, my God, we're going to do something about that. In my office, we made it a mission. And we worked and worked. Everybody said, you can't do it. The Gold Star Widows, they were thinking, Doug, this is great. We appreciate it. We feel good about this. But we've been up here for 20 years. And everybody said, yes, ma'am, we're with you. And then at the end of the day, it was going to cost too much money. And they just wouldn't do it. Well, Alyssa, we got it done. And I am telling you, it was, (laughs) I still get choked up. I bet. It's amazing. Amazing what we did. That's got to be the reason, the impetus for you to keep going, right? Listen, you're such a special man. I just wish that all of our elected officials had the kind of passion and love and service that you have in your heart for the state of Alabama, because it really is an amazing thing to witness. And before you said that you were going to be optimistic, and I think that's amazing. So let's go there for a second and let's be (laughs) optimistic. And let's say the Democrats take control of the Senate in this election and Joe Biden is elected president. What do you think are the first things that the new Congress should work on? I think we're still going to be dealing with this pandemic. That's number one. And I think the first things that we've got to do, if we haven't been able to put them in place, and I'm going to be a little bit optimistic and we put a lot of things in place, but I want to make sure that when we have a vaccine, that we have a manufacturing plan and a distribution plan, that we can get this to every American that will take it. And an education for folks, because you know we've got some of these folks in this country who don't believe in vaccines, and we've got to have an education plan now that we start. And I want to make sure that we've got a distribution plan. I will tell you, Operation Warp Speed that's going on, you got a, a general from Alabama, Gus Perna, who's been put in charge. He and I are friends, and he and I are going to talk a lot about this. I think that is going to be job number one, making sure that that happens. I think we've got to do things on voting rights and giving folks access to the ballot box. We've got to start trying to make sure that we do the things necessary to get folks affordable health care in this country. There are so many things like that that are being undone that we're going to have to try to get back on track. This new Congress is going to be very, very busy with all of that. And I'm optimistic that there's a lot that can get done because I do see people running for office that have the kind of heart that I believe is necessary to get those and the drive that's necessary to try to reach across the aisle to get those things done and pull people with us to make sure that we can move the country forward. Those are some of the most important things that we're facing us because I'd like to be optimistic about it, but I still think that we're going to have issues with this virus, even in January when the new Congress is sworn in and a new president is sworn in. I think you're right. And we all have to sort of surrender to the idea that this is not going to be over anytime soon. That's right. And let me follow that real quick. Please. I hope people paid attention to what you just said, because 
if you understand and know that at some point we will be able to do things very, very similar, not maybe exactly the way we were doing things prior to this, but there is going to be a light at the end of this tunnel. But we've got to do all that we can to make that tunnel as short as it is. And that is going to be up to us. Unless we all learn to wear seatbelts. We all learn to, you know, for, to do those kind of things to protect people. And folks do that without thinking. If we can just adopt that attitude and understand, make these masks a fashion statement and not a political statement, and we'll be okay. Let's get that light shining. Let's get that tunnel to be as short as possible. Senator, tell my listeners how they can support your campaign. Well, I appreciate that very much. We've got the website is DougJones.com. There's links there for Act Blue. Obviously, amplifying us on social media and the things that we do really helps, I believe, especially when people in Alabama are looking. It is just not every day that I think a freshman senator can get past 17 bills, bipartisan bills in such a polarized world. I think it says a lot. It's what we need in this country. So Blue and DougJones.com are ways it can help. But I also think the positive reinforcements that we get on Twitter, I got to tell you, the last couple of days since my opponent won his runoff has been amazing. The support out there has just been extraordinary. And I just hope we can keep it up. And I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to say things that people are not going to be real happy about. I do that. I don't mean to do that, but it happens. But hang with me. Because at the end of the day, we're going to win this race, but I need your help to win it. I need the support that you gave me in 2017. We need to double down right now for 2020 because they're coming after me. Everybody knows they're coming after me, but we can do this. And our path's getting wider, and I feel very good about where we are. Thanks to you, Alyssa, and all of your listeners out there for all you've done. I believe in you. I'm walking beside you. If there's anything that I can do to help, call on me if I could be of service. Selma gave us the voting rights side. The way Birmingham gave us the civil rights side and the march on Washington gave us the civil rights side. If it hadn't been for Selma, hadn't been for the march on Washington, we wouldn't be where we are today. We are so chimneyed these days. Many of us have purity tests working to push people who don't 100% agree with us on 100% of the issues out of government. But in this, we lose something super important, and it's destroying our nation. What we've lost is the consciousness that representative democracy is rooted in, ready? Compromise. We want to push from our side. But if we need to accomplish anything, we need to convince people who aren't on our side to come closer to us. And that means we need to be willing to move closer to them, too. There are very, very few people in government who are willing and able to do this anymore. And it is so important to keep people like Doug Jones, good people who do good work in office. We need his ability to compromise, to break down barriers, and to find enough common ground to get the job done. I know his opponent can't do that. He'll be another McConnell toady, and he's got enough toadies. So today, I'm challenging all of us, left and right, to be a little more like Doug Jones, where there can be common ground 
Step into it and ask others to meet you there. Don't hold purity tests on every single issue. Be willing to be flexible on the issues that have some flex to them. This is how we'll find our way back. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry.